It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, March 2, 2021. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Sitka reported its first coronavirus-related death last week. The city's COVID dashboard was recently updated to reflect the casualty, Sitka's first since the pandemic began last spring. The national death toll reached 500,000 in mid-February. In an email to KCAW, public health nurse Denise Ewing confirmed that the patient's death was reported February 26th but did not give further information. According to a press release from the Sitka Emergency Operations Center, the Sitkin had been traveling out of state. The death has not yet been reported on the state Department of Health and Social Services COVID hub. Sitka's coronavirus alert level remains at low, with only three new cases of the virus reported in the last week. A man in his 60s, a woman in her 40s, and a young person under the age of 19 all tested positive between February 24th and February 27th, according to city data. Two of the patients are non-residents, and one of the non-residents was not experiencing symptoms when he received testing. The other two patients had symptoms. All three cases are tied to community spread. Since last March, Sitka has reported 325 coronavirus cases. As of Monday afternoon, three of those cases are considered active. The city's COVID dashboard now tracks Sitka's vaccination rate. According to city data, nearly 57 percent of Sitkins have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. While Sitka's vaccination rate is promising, the city still recommends social distancing, remaining six feet apart and masking in public, regardless of vaccine status, as it is unclear how the vaccine affects transmission rates. Petersburg remained at 62 active cases of COVID-19 on Sunday. The number of new cases in the community's outbreak slowed a little over the weekend. Petersburg's Emergency Operations Center reported just one new case Saturday and five on Sunday, but also listed six people as recovered. Since February 18th, Petersburg's EOC has reported 70 new cases. Four of those are outside of Petersburg. Eight of those cases are considered recovered. Positive cases have been directed to isolate and state contact tracers are investigating close contacts in the community. A cross-border watershed monitoring program has wrapped up with Alaska and B.C. regulators concluding the project has run its course. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, tribes and scientists say there's still work to be done. The Taku, Stikine, and Yunak are significant salmon-producing rivers. These fisheries are a key subsistence food source for Southeast Alaskans, and they're prized for the cash value for commercial and charter fleets. In 2015, Governor Walker signed a landmark agreement with British Columbia, pledging to study and monitor these transboundary watersheds that host a booming Canadian mining sector and Alaska's fisheries. That monitoring effort didn't get off the ground until 2017, and now Alaska and B.C. governments say their work is done. Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation Project Manager Terry Lomax says the state developed valuable partnerships with British Columbia, but now there are other entities doing the monitoring, including the U.S. Geological Service. So we do not want to be duplicative and want to truly just be efficient with all the resources. Didn't feel like it was necessary for multiple agencies to be collecting the same thing. And it's the same story on the other side of the border, too. Greg Tamblin heads B.C.'s Environment Ministry's Regional Water Quality Section in Smithers. Because these established sampling programs in the region, continuation of the joint sampling program would really be redundant. Their final report says that two years of data found that water quality standards weren't exceeded on Alaska's side of the border. It found times when certain heavy metals were over limits in sediment, but noted there's a lot of naturally occurring minerals in the region. But scientists who've studied these watersheds say a couple of years is a blink of an eye for dynamic river systems. You can't measure a given site once or twice a year for two years and 
and claim that you know the baseline uh, watershed health of that area. Chris Sargent is a freshwater ecologist with the University of Montana's Flathead Lake Biological Station. The final report noted there was little evidence of contamination and aquatic life appeared healthy. But Sargent says many of the mines that Alaskans downstream are worried about haven't been built yet. You know, the way I look at this is we have a lot of potential mines coming down the pike that are very large projects. They could be built in the near future. And so I'm looking at like, well, do we know what these metal patterns look like right now in these rivers in case those big projects are built and things change? And I just don't think we're set up for success to answer that question yet. It was Southeast Alaska tribes that helped spur the Walker administration to engage B.C. over transboundary mining. And they say the work has been short-lived. Fred Olson Jr. heads the 15 tribes Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission. We definitely need water quality sampling, but we need ongoing, seasonal, sustainable sampling. We don't need a couple years of hit and miss, cherry picking the data, and then saying everything's okay. But Alaska and BC will still collaborate. Its bilateral working group, established during the Walker administration, will continue to meet twice a year. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Bresnik. Over the weekend, Juneau City officials warned of the potential for historic avalanches, prompting a voluntary evacuation of one downtown neighborhood. Most residents stayed with friends or relatives in town, but a few spent Saturday night at Centennial Hall, where the city and the Red Cross set up an evacuation center. KTOO's Jennifer Pemberton has the story. Heavy, wet snow, a kind of slush, was falling in Juneau on Saturday night. It's the kind of snow you can hear hitting the ground with a splash. And it's really hard to shovel. It's like lifting a couple gallons of water. It wasn't much better at the top of Mount Juno, where the same wet concrete snow was piling up on top of this winter's very unstable snowpack. Juno's urban avalanche forecast was for extreme danger on Saturday. That's a five on a scale that goes to five. The city's emergency manager, Tom Matisse, said it was the first time he'd ever forecasted an extreme avalanche condition for Juneau. It was also the first time since 2008 that the city recommended that people in the Barron's Avenue neighborhood near downtown evacuate their homes. The Barron's Avenue avalanche path runs down Mount Juneau on the side facing Gastineau Channel near Juneau Douglas High School. It's obvious where the path is, especially in summer when you can see a distinct lack of trees. At the bottom of the path is three rows of houses. I knocked on 39 doors today, a couple more on the edges of the avalanche path, but that's, um, that's how many houses I knocked on and, and logged in my record. I talked to Tom Matisse at the city's evacuation center on Saturday night. He said most people are staying at friends' houses or hotels. There are several people that had motorhomes or boats and a lot of people with relatives in town. And so we wanted to make sure that we had people that had an option. So the city teamed up with the Red Cross and opened up Centennial Hall. Only a few people registered to stay overnight, but it's busy with volunteers. One of the ballrooms is set up with about half a dozen white tents, each with a few cots inside, so families can stay together and spread out from other groups of people, both for privacy and COVID-19 safety. Michelle Brown is a Juno City employee and a Red Cross volunteer. 
see the little tent? We've got a wool blanket, we've got a fleece blanket, we've got pillows in there for folks. So we, we're set up to be able to help with um, the whole situation if it comes to that. Two officers with Juno Animal Control are here too, so that people can bring their pets with them, or even drop them off if they need to stay somewhere their pets can't. They have a few cat carriers and some leashes at the ready. Jordan Bales is one of the animal control officers. What we're offering is, you know, holding people's animals for up to 10 days if need be, uh, free of charge. No pets are here yet, but someone stopped by earlier to say his cat had run away in the avalanche zone. They filed a lost pet report for him and are hopeful the cat will be found. The next day, the avalanche advisory was high, but no longer extreme, and there didn't end up being any slides in the Barents Avenue area. The forecast for Sunday was for colder temperatures and less precipitation, so even though conditions were right for large avalanches, Matisse wrote in his report that, quote, we may have dodged a bullet for the time being on the big one. For now, that top layer of new snow, called the storm slab, doesn't seem like it's going to come down. It's deep enough, though, that an avalanche would reach the houses at the bottom of the avalanche path. And underneath that storm slab is a deeper layer of snow from earlier in the year called the persistent weak layer. If that layer slid down the hill with everything on top of it, that avalanche would go all the way past the houses and Glacier Avenue and down to Gastineau Channel. And that persistent weak layer of snow is still there. And Matisse says it's there under the snow throughout the entire region. This year is going to be dangerous and this year is going to be spooky. And it may not end until all the snow is gone in the spring. On Sunday, Matisse went up the Dan Muller Trail on Douglas Island. He said he saw what he called 30 to 100-year avalanches, meaning really big ones, the kinds that snap off branches and knock whole trees down. There's still significant danger in the backcountry and in urban areas. And there's more rain and snow in the forecast for this week. In Juneau, I'm Jennifer Pemberton. Two close contacts of State Representative Mike Kronk and two other legislative staff members have tested positive for COVID-19 since Kronk tested positive on Wednesday. All four new positive cases are quarantining away from the Capitol. Fifteen people have been identified as close contacts of Kronk, a talk Republican, and are currently quarantining, according to Jessica Geary. Geary is the executive director of the Legislative Affairs Agency. The legislature requires that everyone who works in the Capitol, including all legislators, staff members and news reporters, undergo rapid tests for the coronavirus every four or five days. Kronk tested positive after attending an Alaska Outdoor Council banquet on February 20th that other Republican legislators and Governor Mike Dunleavy also attended. Dunleavy also tested positive last week. The House didn't hold any in-person committee meetings on Thursday through Sunday. The in-person House committee meetings resumed Monday. Kronk has an excused absence from the House while he isolates. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News. Oh, oh.